Tundra Talk is brought to you by Frontier Outfitters and Century Hardware, your locally owned source for hunting, fishing, and shooting gear in interior Alaska. They sell proven gear that will tackle whatever Alaskan tasks you need it to, and Frontier always stays current with gear for the season. Whether you're baiting bears in the spring, fishing, camping, or dip netting in the summer, you're looking for game bags and moose camp gear in the fall, uh, if you need to stock up on trapping lures or just get everything you need to go ice fishing, they've got you covered. They always carry a wide variety of Alaskan-proven clothing and boots, camping gear, meat processing supplies, guns, ammo, reloading and shooting supplies, as well as camping gear and backpacking food. Downstairs in Century Hardware, you'll find a full hardware store naturally, and uh, you'll also find your snow machine, ATV, marine accessories down there. They go out of their way to stock plenty, plenty of quality, useful equipment. And whether you're gearing up for a hunting or fishing trip, working on a never-ending home improvement project, or anything in between, it's usually a one-stop shop. Frontier Outfitters is located on 3rd and Old Steese in Fairbanks, and they have a second location in North Pole, so make sure you stop in next time you need to gear up. This episode of Tundra Talk is also brought to you by Hedgecock Group Realtor Rick Lindsay, a guy that can take care of just about any of your real estate needs in the Fairbanks area. Now, the Hedgecock Group has been in Fairbanks North Pole real estate market since the early 80s, and their service is tailored to meet the diverse needs of home buyers in interior Alaska. Now, Rick has lived in Fairbanks for a long time and understands a lot of the less obvious ins and outs of buying and selling property around here. You know, things like water holding tanks and permafrost and all that jazz. Fairbanks is a really unique place to live, and having a realtor that knows what to look for in a quality place can make all the difference. Rick's a Marine Corps veteran and will work hard to get you exactly what you need. And if you're looking to buy or sell real estate in the Fairbanks or North Pole area, reach out to Rick at 907-378-6780. And go check out his Instagram at R-L-I-N-D-S-E-Y-113 at rlindsey113. He's really a passionate outdoorsman. He's just like us. He's one of us. And he loves to share his adventures on there. And he's got a pretty a pretty nice cranker of a ram that I'm jealous of. So go check him out. I know there's lots of you out there that dream of moving to Alaska, but it's a big step and can be kind of intimidating. Landing a solid job before you move can make things run a lot smoother, but you might not be sure of the job market or even really where to look. Now, if you're an experienced ASC certified or GM factory trained technician, I've got good news for you. Chevrolet GMC of Fairbanks is looking to hire qualified service department techs, and they've got enough work to keep you pretty much as busy as you want to be. Fairbanks Chevy has a very busy shop, but they allow for flexible scheduling. They offer top market pay rates with paid overtime, a great benefits package with 401k retirement plan with contribution matching. And, you know, for a service tech, you can really make a good solid living. They, they can offer relocation assistance to help get you up here, paid training to get you spun up, and they have a well-lit and well-maintained facility, and these are all things that I mean, help contribute to a great work atmosphere. On top of all that, they make it a priority to allow you to take your vacation time during hunting season, something that is really tough in the, in the service and construction industries here in Fairbanks and can sometimes be a deal breaker for folks like us. Good help and hard workers are always welcome in Fairbanks, and if this is the opportunity you've been waiting for, apply at FairbanksChevy.com or call their service manager, Rick Lindsay, directly at 907-215-6444. That's how you do it.
All right. Welcome back to Tundra Talk, everybody. I'm Tyler Friel, uh, sitting in the the uh, Rocky Mountain headquarters of Outdoor Life, I guess you could say, uh, slash the, 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 the mahogany-scented office or sitting sitting room parlor library of uh of john mr john b snow our shooting editor <laughs> who is uh was you were on the pod we we had a, did a podcast not too long ago but i figured hey man i'm i ended up being in your neck of the woods why the hell not and we've both been shooting stuff so yeah no it's uh <laughs> it was a sort of an unexpected treat to have you uh wander down from the frozen northern wastelands and visit me in my more southerly and and increasingly frozen wasteland (laughs) so yeah from one wasteland to another and hanging out with a little little fire going and in our comfy chairs while we talk about well whatever it is you want to talk about yeah we'll talk about plenty of stuff i will note that it's probably a good thing we're doing this in the morning because we tried to do an episode of tundra talk in the evening while we're drinking we'd probably would end up sparring with those those swords you got up on the wall or something. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's my uh, that's my grandfather's naval dress sword up there on the left. He was a, uh, a career Navy officer, uh, Annapolis class of 36, kind of graduated at exactly the right or wrong time, depending on how you look Your at it. Your perspective, yeah. The perspective. And then, and then that other thing, that's actually a cold steel. That is, a, I think, a 1917 pattern uh naval um saber cutlass uh naval cutlass rather and uh, that's a left hand i'm a lefty you know it's my <laughs> dominant hand even though i shoot shoot right-handed mostly you know but that's a it's a left-handed uh naval cutlass and uh and i've actually have used that um in butchering animals sometimes because it will make a really nice clean cut through a rib cage and oh really and other things nice. yeah you know how sometimes you you saw through bones and it gets all jagged and messed up and I'm a know. sawzall man myself <laughs> yeah well you know what I I, I I guess you I guess you have you you got the edge on sophistication for me <laughs> you know what it's 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 more of a justification to you know act like a, a nine year old and swing a sword around <laughs> and, and pretend like you're doing some real work but no saw is also a much better choice yeah. no that's pretty cool that was no, that was an interesting detail. I didn't expect to uh, to get from that, but yeah, you've been you've been cruising around and, sh- and shooting stuff. You know, we're kind of always with our jobs, always in in the mode of shooting something. You know, and I'm sure I've said it before, but when I got hired full time, I had this kind of thought of how like how the hell am I going to keep myself busy, and that has not been an issue. No, it's 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 not an issue. There's always something going on, and yeah, no, I've I've been having a a really fun and and kind of packed packed fall, and I'm sort of I guess we're approaching sort of the tail end of it. I've got another couple big uh, cuts at the plate. Well, one in particular, I drew a really uh, cool bull tag, a late rifle elk hunt tag for Utah that I'm prepping for or got to prep for. Actually, I haven't like kind of the way these things always happen it sort of sneaks up on you yeah um i haven't really prepped enough but anyway i've I've got that coming up you know it's sort of the in in the next few days i've got to get ready and point my nose south and get myself back into the elk mountains yeah that's awesome you should you just got got an elk and a mule deer in colorado 
Yep, I did, I had a had a really fun road trip down there. Managed to do a couple back to back hunts, and um, both were in southern Colorado, kind of in that uh, you know kind of near uh, Trinidad area, more or less. Um, and that's such pretty country down there. It's so interesting. It's very it's very kind of game rich and, and like a, a lot of states, like, you know, I hunt Colorado every single year. You know, my good buddy Cody lives down there and, and we end up hunting, you know, typically sort of in and around the the Granby area, more or less geographically. And that's a certain type of like kind of very familiar mountainous terrain. But, you know, you get out on the Eastern Plains where we've hunted big whitetails in like that kind of yucca flat ag country. And then you know, this place down there, you know, Colorado's got quite a, quite a cool amount of, uh, variation in it is, re- it was really neat. The, the mule deer hunt was in these, um, kind of big, um, sage flats out there, just real flat, open country, challenging country to hunt. Um, but, but super, super fun. Yeah. The whole, the whole thing was great. Yeah. Nice. And you were, you had kind of, uh, so one 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 used the three hundred Win Mag and the other one three hundred PRC, right? And just for informational, being the shooting editor, we're gonna like get a little nerdy about about guns and ballistics and stuff like that. Yeah. So um, you know, yeah, my first segment of my trip down there was uh, was an elk hunt, and I had a uh, a Kimber um, in in three hundred Win Mag, and I was shooting uh, some of that Hornaday. Um, 178 grain ELDX bullets in that. And that was a really nice kind of pairing. And, you know, one of the things that I appreciate about our work is that, you know, you'll have these opportunities that kind of push you a little bit out of your comfort zone, you know, sort of, you know, you get encouraged to, you know, maybe go to a rifle you haven't, a type of rifle you haven't shot mm-hmm. in a while uh, go with a cartridge maybe you haven't hunted with in a while. And, and that was the case with both of these. I hadn't, I can't remember the last Kimber rifle I shot. It probably was an 8,400 and it was probably quite a while ago, you know, and, and, uh, so it was kind of fun to get reacquainted with what they're doing. You know, they've got that very sort of classic kind of old school sort of Mausery looking action mm-hmm. with like the big, you know, you know, kind of, uh, <clears throat> extracting claw. And, well, and they've even got a kind of like a cone, cone breech. Mm-hmm. I don't know if all of them do, but I've seen, you know, some, I think that one, I, that Hunter Pro, I think, which is just that kind of the 84 action in a pretty lightweight rifle, but like the old style. And what I'm talking about is at the breach where at the the back of the chamber is kind of coned in. And that's something you would see on old Mausers and Springfields and pre-64 Winchesters, which actually made them less like weaker actions than than like the uh, you know like the post sixty four push feed model seventy is a stronger action than the pre sixty four which it's fine you know everyone then the pre sixty fours are awesome rifles but it's uh, it's interesting to me you know you read Jack O'Connor like I have the copy of Jack O'Connor's like review of the first, the post sixty four Winchester and like he had some good things to say about it that and I mean that was that was one of them. Yeah, well, I you know it's interesting you say that you know because I actually have a pre sixty four with the comb breech. It's in a twenty two Hornet. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, no, it's a, it's, a, it's wicked. A, it's, it's a really it's a really neat old rifle. And um, yeah, no, that eighty four hundred did not have the comb breech. That had a flat the uh, 
that one did. But you know, I liked. Does you know, that? If I interrupt you, that does that one uh, original barrel and stuff? I take it on that twenty two Hornet or yes, like a pre? Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was gonna, yeah, I was gonna say, man, like I, <laughs> I'd be tempted to rebar, rebarrel that thing for seventeen Hornet. Yeah, well, you that know, seventeen Hornet is just—I love that cartridge. It's wicked. Well, I got a, uh, you know, and again, you know, these rifles actually—they're—they're they're at my workshop where we're, where we're not. Uh, both those rifles are out there, but I've also got a CZ, um, four fifty something. I can't remember. I'm gonna mess up the number. Anyway, I've got one of those kind of their Americans in the seventeen Hornet as well. So I've got I've got. You know that you know sort of the, that that pairing of those of those little stingers, but yeah, no, I'm not rebarreling the <laughs> the pre sixty the pre sixty four. I've no. done a lot of stupid things in my life, and <laughs> that's not going to be that's one of that's them. not going to be one of them. <laughs> nope. Oh, <laughs> well, anyway, yeah, it's uh, <clears throat> so like you know that that Kimber three hundred Win Mag, and then a Browning three hundred PRC. Yep, Browning, Browning, Browning 300 PRC, and I was using um, some uh, Barnes ammo. In that one, I was using a 208 grain, uh, sort of their LRX line. Um, you know, I mean, that's a thing. That thing was a hammer, and uh, that was on these mule deer. And, and the, or it could and, be our RLX, really long X bullet. <laughs> ex- ex- exactly. Yeah, I know. And, you know, for that monometal bullet, you know, 208 grains and a 30 cal, that is a big long bullet yeah uh, very very kind of cool i've got to do some um sort of more determined accuracy testing with it so i don't have any like real uh detail to support it yet because i've ju- I've just got my hands on on that rifle and haven't really had a chance to kind of put it through our sort of you know test protocol to to, to sort of in a more confident way give an assessment of 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 what it what it does but the sort of the initial stuff i messed around with and you know shooting it at distance in the field and things it, it was it was working pretty well worked worked, worked yeah. well enough to get my mule deer at 400 yards so you know hey pr- proof's in the pudding and that proof was on the ground so <laughs> in a cooler right now <laughs> and in a cooler right now exactly yeah it's uh it's pretty interesting and so like that makes me think one thing uh that I every I mean maybe it's just me but I think a lot of people when you see you know when I saw the 300 PRC come out or you see new different cartridges come out like some of these modern cartridge design cartridges you like my assumption with the the PRC compared to the Win Mag was that like it's going to be a much faster hotter cartridge but it's re- that's not really how it works with uh, with so you know like the 300 PRC in particular or um, oh trying to think some others um, it's not necessarily a speed chasing like what after after the last time you were on um, one of the listeners had was kind of hoping that we you'd, we'd talk about the 28 nozzler a little bit so maybe mm. we can roll into that but it kind of plays into you know like the nozzler cartridges and a lot of the Weatherby cartridges are seem to be more speed focused while cartridges like the 300 PRC is like it's more efficiency and constructed around a certain type of bullet um, is like the more of the focus from what I understand now than just raw dog Speed. velocity. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, and, and this is a, this is sort of a, 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 I guess for lack of a better term, sort of a, a, 
an ongoing tension in sort of modern rifle and ammunition marketing. You know, um, you know, hunters have always liked speed. You know, and and in part, you know, it's it's because it's a variable we can all <clears throat> look at and appreciate. And, and I'm just thinking about when I was a kid. You know, and I'd go to the gun store and I'd grab a catalog from, you know, of Remington or Weatherby or, or whatever. Like the first thing I would do and what I would do mostly is turn to the back of the things and look at the ballistics tables. Mm-hmm. You know, and so you would see something like a certain type of 700 that's chambered in, you know, whatever, dozen and a half cartridges or whatever it was. And of course, you know, I'm just going down the data, like looking for the fastest yeah. one and then looking for the one that shoots the flattest at 400 and 500 yards on their little drop table, yeah. you know, and to me, that was the definition of performance, you know, and I think that was common for all of us. And, and we still see that there is this, um, you know, sense in which velocity equals performance and we see this in the pushback that you get on, of course, classic cases, 6.5 Creedmoor or some of these other um, sort of more m- m- cartridges that are, that are developed around efficiency, as you said. And But what does that efficiency mean? What that efficiency really translates to, and this is absolutely the case with the 300 PRC, efficiency means retained downrange performance. So it might not be spitting fire out the front end, but by the time you look at what it's doing, let's just say 800 yards down range or more, uh, because some of these were developed for, you know, longer, really longer range applications, mm-hmm. you know, all of a sudden that combination of, of, of bullet design and, um, and the other attributes that go into the cartridge are really starting to shine. So, you know, a, a good, a good example, you know, that, you know, we wrote about recently, I can't remember what the title of the story was, but exactly where I, I looked at the 6.5 PRC sort of in comparison to other, you know, sort of big, big game cartridges, the 300 Win Mag included, mm-hmm. you know, and, and obviously at the muzzle, you know, and, and I think I looked at the uh, factory loading of 300 Win Mag with 180 grain Acupond, you know, no slouch Just a of a stellar like hunting round. Yeah, I mean a st- yeah. I mean exactly, a stellar round and like no slouch. So it wasn't like I was had my thumb on the scales with the example like I picked some sort of marginal load for the 3 yeah, yeah. I mean that is a quality center of mass, no pun intended, load to sort of pivot around uh in in the in the 300 and the 300 win mag is his own interesting story because of the way it's evolved over the years and we can either get into the weeds on that or not but but the point is is that if you compare that to and i can't remember which bullet if it was 147 grain or 156 grain eol like burger or, or maybe even the 143 so i'm not sure you know off the off the top of my head which bullet in the 65 prc but another standard bullet in the 65 prc nothing nothing that's like crazy and out there again my thumb wasn't on the scales and, and you look at by the time they get to five six hundred yards that six five prc is is outperforming and by every meaningful metric that 300 win mag yeah. the bullets dropping less it's shooting flatter and it has better retained velocity and energy at that point but at the muzzle you know the 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 generated recoil is a third yeah. of what the 300 win you know and so in some ways that 65 prc like 
you know, it's a, it's a fast bullet. It's, you know, sort of all things being equal, it's about 200 feet per second faster than a 6.5 Creedmoor kind of bullet for bullet, more mm-hmm. or less. You know, it's one way to think about it. So it's kind of a, it's a short mag sort of philosophy, but my God, it's an efficient cartridge. And that's part of the reason, like, I keep gravitating towards it because based on what I know now, I'm not just, I'm not just that little kid looking at that yeah. velocity figure. Well, and you go back to, you know, you reading old, even old issues of outdoor life and just looking at how velocity was leveraged, you know, we talk about the 250 Savage, how that was almost in, in, in that way. Cause they, it was a 253,000 and, you know, like you read Alaska's Wolfman talks about Frank Glazer using that. It was, I think one of the first guns he market hunted cheap with and talked about killing big, you know, killing one, at least big grizzly bear with it. Uh, but that was the 3000 was, was like the first commercial cartridge to reach 3000 feet per second was their pitch, but they had almost had, they had to use a marginal, like the 87 grain bullet, I think to get it when it was really designed to be used with a hundred or I don't know if they had one tens back then, but like probably my favorite 25 out six bullet is like a one ten Acubond or something similar. Oh, that's, a, that's a great bullet. You know, um, so like that's, but you know, and, and it's one, the 270, you know, which I recently wrote up, uh, kind of wrote a story on looking at a little bit of the history and how does it fit in today? I mean, it's just a superb cartridge and always was, but that, and that was one of the, you know, a real advantage, but also a selling point of it for a lot of years is it was kind it's, of the fastest standard cartridge. You had some of the Weatherby mags back then, you know, in the, uh, not too long after the 270 came about, but, uh, but it was for a long time, the fastest like standard cartridge and even O'Connor's like, yeah, the 270 is kind of a Magnum in its own. Like it's like, it's, it, it you know, it, it, you know, depend with standard type factory loads, you know, like a 270 is not, mm, it's, you're kind of splitting hairs between a 270 and a seven mag. Yeah, you're, you're, you're right. And even, you know, it's interesting. We could probably look this up after the podcast, see if I could find it. But, you know, O'Connor didn't have the same kind of vocabulary that we have about aeroballistic efficiency mm-hmm. and sort of ballistic coefficient and stuff. But even he talked about the virtues of, I can't remember if it was the 130 or, or if he was actually talking about one of the other loads. But anyway, he, even he recognized, you know, he was a sophisticated guy. He, he knew what he was talking about, obviously. Um, he talked about the retained, the good retained velocity of some of those bullets downrange. Mm-hmm. And that kind of being part of the magic of the 270 is that, um, you know, is that the bullets did hang on to their speed and, and that contributed to their flat shooting quality and their and their ability to have be effective in a terminal sense, you know, at, at distance, you know, versus some of the blockier, you know, kind of comparatively blockier bullets, you know, from a thirty cal that somebody maybe would want to advocate because, you know, they're looking at a muzzle velocity and energy thing and saying, well, it's you know, X percent bigger than a 270. Well, you know, no animal at point blank range is going to know the difference between either. Mm-hmm. And then when you actually look at what those equivalent cartridges are doing at, in space at distance at 400 yards or whatever, well, the 270 is really shining. And in fact, is, you know, in, in some cases really overtaken yeah. or is overtaking, um, you know, th- those bigger, you know, supposedly better cartridges, um, 
And right. it's people. And one one thing like we encounter a lot in feedback is people. You know, people sometimes take take it as an, a personal attack when you you know you you point out some of the real like measurable advantages. You know, and it's like you know, like we said, the three hundred Win Mags is just a great cartridge. And you can you know, like I that that fierce rifle I have, I hand loaded two hundred twelve grain ELDXs, and like they're they're not screaming, but with that hand load, like, you know, a standard 6.5 PRC load isn't going to quite catch that one. But when you look at what at the standard, you know, is, well, I say a lot probably because I took it from you, like factory rifle, factory ammo, like you look at a good, like representative average, like there, there's meaningful differences. You can always cherry pick, you know, the best possible combination with this and that and so it, it, it's just, it's fascinating to me. I like, I like kind of being nerdy about it. And my perspective has changed over the years of dealing with you for a while. I was like, man, what's this guy's problem? When you're like, I don't, I don't want to touch that piece of shit. You know, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, John's kind of a gun snob, you know, and he is a little bit of a gun snob, but I start to understand the perspective when you, it makes you a little bit more objective when you get the chance to handle and shoot all the, you know, different types of guns. And it does it like opens my eyes more and more and more. The more I get to, to try stuff, you get like just a blunt objectivity to it because you don't have any, you know, it's not like my first hunt rifle that I saved up to buy. And I really like that rifle and it works fine. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's, you know, it's not, and I may not understand why someone wants to spend 2000 or $3,000 on a top end. You know, I think, oh, it can't do anything mine can't do into a certain, it's not, not to say not, it doesn't invalidate my rifle, the rifle I like, but, uh, like that, it's interesting to me to like see my own objectivity grow a little bit. Um, and kind of, it's not like a numbness, but it's just a, like, I don't have strings attached to these guns. So I am able to just look at them for what they are and run them hard and they do what they do and they don't what they don't. <laughs> well, I- I- exactly. Right. You know, and we all have that, that fond sense of nostalgia. It's something that's, that I really like love about just sort of outdoor pursuits in general and hunting and shooting in particular is that sense of nostalgia and tradition. And, you know, this might be a gun that my father and my grandfather used. And, you know, this has been sort of a staple of, you know, this deer camp, you know, shooting like lever guns or or whatever it might be. But, you know, at the professional level of getting a chance to handle all of these guns and handle them intensely, you know, you, you, you kind of that, that, those, those strings of attachment do get severed. And it does give you a, a lot more objectivity. And, you know, so for, like, for instance, for me, you, you were just making making me think about, well, what's changed in my perspective over the years? And certainly as I've done kind of more and more competitive shooting, which, you know, I, I just think is, you know, and these are practical field competitions is what I'm talking about. Things like, you know, NRL Hunter is a good example or some of these various, um, you know, kind of tactical style field steel matches, you know, can be partner matches. I enjoy that or the long range stuff, you know, these other qualities start to come to the fore. And so for me, like recoil management is a big one. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't, you know, I, 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 you know, it's hard to overstate how much um, 
value I place on 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 a rifle and cartridge design that from you know kind of like a well supported but like not a bench or not a prone position but a well supported field position mm-hmm. if I can drive that rifle correctly and maintain a sight picture you know that I mean that is worth so much more to me than stepping up to a bigger magnum mm-hmm. and whatever its theoretical better killing capabilities might be I want to be able to you know call my shot I want to be able to keep my eye on on you know in this case an animal that maybe needs a follow-up shot or if nothing else I want to keep my eye on it as it disappears into the brush and I can see where it lines out to make recovery better mm-hmm. you know so so for example like just re the the ability of a of a gun to you know a stock design a, a cartridge kind of power level for lack of a better term um, the ability of a rifle system to like correctly manage recoil and let, and then for it to be able to cycle well where I can run the bolt while still maintaining my sight pictures through the optic and not have that that cycling of the action be a jarring thing that kind of knocks it mm-hmm. out of view. I mean, I put a lot of value into a rifle that can do that. And that has absolutely zero to do with those ballistic tables that I used to focus on. Yeah. Yeah, well, and what that boils down, you know, a lot of it boils down to, and we we aren't ever making the case, I think, you know, like in our writing, that that older cartridges or whatever cartridge you like or I like doesn't work anymore, you know, because of course they do. But you know, focusing on some of the advantage maybe advantages maybe of new cartridges of some of the new cartridges or this rifle cycle, you know, this rifle is is just friendlier on the shooter. Um, like that's a, that's a, a huge thing that has been valued by a lot of, you know, I think maybe we talked about it last time, how even, you know, like Townsend, Townsend Whalen and Jack O'Connor, all those guys wrote a lot about liking cartridges that were, you know, were mild recoiling cartridges, not be, you know, and it, you know the classic things, oh, well, you sissy, you know, you can't, you can't handle it. You know, it's like, it's not a matter of being able to handle it, but when you're in there, you know, like there, I like big guns too. I mean, I, I love my 375. <laughs> it's not that much fun to shoot, but I, for its, for its purpose, I love it, but it's just not, you know, I'm not going to take that hunting for everything because it's not necessary. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, and the thing is you read those guys, you know, like who, whoever's opinion you value, you know, El, Elmer Keith might be an outlier in this, you know, he, there, there seemingly was no gun, you know, so big that he didn't love it but like for people who shoot a lot for a living you know to the tunes of thousands or tens of thousands of 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 rounds a year i think i'm at about eighteen thousand right now yeah i mean for this year (laughs) exactly i've I've never i've never kept track of my own shooting but it's but it's a pile right you know and you know in terms of the enjoyment of the shooting and the ability to shoot well uh, you know, having an appropriate level like a milder cartridge is just a, a, a huge benefit. And the and the fact is, from a terminal perspective, whether terminally we're talking about um, hitting steel in competition or some kind of training scenario, or terminally in terms of its effectiveness on game, you know, the the supposed benefits of going heavier are often really, really overstated. And so, if you read you know, Townsend Whalen or Jack O'Connor or Jim Carmichael or any other kind of expert gun writer of of the olden days whose opinion 
you value. You know, you know, they'll often state explicitly or read in between the lines. You can see that oh, for a lot of those guys, less was more, and that's kind of and we're still there and we're still having this argument to to, to yeah. this day. Um, and the volume, well, the, you know, like there was <laughs> one guy the other day was saying, well, twenty five years ago, no one was saying that that most people could only handle like up to two seventy thirty out six recoil, meaning that that's what people can shoot comfortably and well and and you know you're being able to shoot more like a higher volume yeah and and he's right 25 years ago they weren't saying it they were saying it 100 years ago exactly (laughs) yeah Yeah. well maybe not 25 but but well they were no they were saying it 25 like but they but 20 because carmichael you know it was right it was funny because right about that time carmichael had you know wrote a story on like it was like um uh I can't remember the title, but I, cause I, I wrote kind of a for like a precursor to it and just Carmichael's story about how, you know, no one's immune to the cumulative effects of recoil. And, uh, then, you know, O'Connor had, had one on getting kicked is what it was called. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but and he like explicitly had stated, I think it was in the forties, one article I was flipping through that, you know, like, yeah, two seventy thirty out six is about the level of recoil that most people can handle meaning shoot comfortably and and whatnot it doesn't you know yeah, yeah so that, and, and and towns and whalen talked about it beforehand you know and towns and whalen was you know part of our you know he was a professional army officer and he and he specialized in in small arms ordnance stuff so the, you know the ot six and you know all of that kind of thing like dovetail overlapped with his career in terms of what the u.s military adopted and you know he made no bones about it. I mean, his favorite big game cartridge was a two fifty seven Roberts. Yeah, you know, and that is a that is the very definition of a mild yeah. cartridge. You know, and and there were some things that he would go heavier with, like for bigger animals. And he had effusive praise for the two seventy. He thought it was like our finest all around big game cartridge. So, you know, th- this idea that somehow guys were tougher back then. No, guys were just as stuck on stuff yeah. <laughs> back then and, and they weren't really listening or, or they've, or they have very selective memories about how they think the gun writers of yore, you know, viewed this stuff when in fact these guys are, you know, were advocating many of the same things that we talk about that still get people riled up. Yeah. It's pretty funny. And another, another thing that I've heard a lot of times over the years is I have no bones about like, if I write something, I'm willing to stand behind it. And if someone, you know, convinces me I was wrong, you know, then, then, then I'm happy to admit when, you know, I'm, I'm human too. But, uh, one of the one, one of the ones I keep hearing is, oh, Jack O'Connor never would have never would have talked to me this way or, or he would have, you know, he never, they would never be like this to their readers. It, it's just funny. Cause I'm like, yeah, like from what I hear, like they had no tolerance. They just didn't have, they just didn't have the internet. They, they did have no tolerance for bullshit. No, they did. <laughs> Actually, I've got a fun Jack O'Connor story. I'll, I'll, I'll that sort of, uh, alludes to this. So I, I joined outdoor life in 2001 and we were doing like kind of right when I joined, not long after, we were putting together a retrospective on Jack O'Connor, like a, a big piece. And of course, I was like kid in a candy store. I just thought this was the coolest thing. Here I am at the the mothership. You know, the offices at that mm-hmm. point were in downtown Manhattan. And um, Buck Buckner, we we flew him in from Oregon. Buck was a 
buddy of Jack's. I really Jack's anyways Jack's best friend um, for for a long time. And uh, old rancher, you know, they spent a lot of time together hunting and things. And and Buck was bringing in. He was helping us select some photos. He had a bunch of archival stuff as well. And this was before the, the Jack O'Connor Center was established in Lewiston, Idaho. This was kind of sort of part and parcel of this whole effort as well. So there's a lot of context here. But anyway, long story short, so Buck was in the office and had brought a bunch of memorabilia, letters, notes, whatever of O'Connor's to for us to photograph or use or reference. And um, I just had to ask, I'm like, dude, you were... Yeah, I don't think I said dude. I probably said Mr. Buckner. Mr. Yeah. Buckner. Dude! <laughs> Mr. Buckner. You were you were like Jack's best friend, you know. I mean, what what was he like? And Buck sort of looked thoughtfully and said, Well, Jack could be real honest. <laughs> you know, and that was about the nicest thing you could say about Jack O'Connor. I mean, he would kick you in the teeth. If he thought you were a moron, the idea yeah. that Jack O'Connor wouldn't talk to you that way. Oh brother, I've got some bad news for you. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, uh, here, here's a, you know, J- Jack and his wife, Eleanor, you know, they were, they were not teetotalers at all. And they were somewhat famous for their, for their drinking. And there was a, um, kind of a funny story about how, uh, you know, Jack rubbed elbows with a bunch of aristocracy back in the day. So like he, um, he went hunting, you know, like with, uh, with one of the princes in Iran. Yeah. I remember he, seeing the story. Yeah. Yeah. So you've seen those stories and he also hobnobbed with some of the kind of the big worldwide big game hunters in like kind of, uh, Britain and so on and so forth, you know, and, and, and again, that sort of upper crust, literally royalty set, yeah. you know, that's, you know, you know, the sporting life was something they did and Jack kind of was in that world <clears throat> a fair bit, but. Jack was, you know, Jack was a sophisticated guy, but, you know, he and Eleanor were from the West, you know, mm-hmm. little, little rougher, rougher stock. So they were at a dinner in, um, in England. It was being hosted by some Duke or whatever the hell it was. But some, so, so that's like some douche, some, some douche, some douche <laughs> I mean, pro, pro, probably that as well, but some, some like high level personages and, you know, the, you know, of course everybody has their assigned seating and, and everything else. And because of the, you know, they would go boy, girl, boy, girl, you know, typically is how this kind of thing goes. So anyway, Eleanor was seated next to the Prince of, of Iran at this dinner. And, um, and Eleanor was, I think a little in her cups. And was just talking about how much, you know, God, the weather here in England just stinks. You know, it's always raining and all this stuff. And, you know, their money, like their money just looks weird. I don't know, <laughs> understand, you know, they're like, why, why does the money have to, and my God, and the food is just, I mean, they call this food, like this stuff is da 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 da. And so the host of the party is kind of keeping an eye on the proceedings and he sees, Eleanor just sort of talking the prince's ear off about this stuff. And, you know, he's getting a little concerned. And so he kind of pulls Jack aside. He's like, you know, Jack, you know, the Eleanor's grinding a little hard on the prince there. You think you could have her like, just, you know, just kind of let her know to mellow it out or whatever. Jack's like, hmm, yeah, sure. And so anyway, so she's complaining about like whatever the hell it is. And, you know, Jack had been drinking a little bit too. And so finally he says, God damn it, Eleanor, shut the fuck up. <laughs> At which point Eleanor bursts into tears, runs out of the room, 
the poor host has his head in his hands, like thinking, oh, that was Jack handling the situation. <laughs> so anyway, the idea that Jack would be, would be kind to an internet troll on Facebook <laughs> talking shit, yeah, <laughs> that doesn't track. Another one was funny. I, I just came across this. I'm, I, I like picking through the old, you know, reader submitted questions and stuff in old. Is This is when uh, Colonel Askins was the shooting editor. This guy uh, writes in, uh, you know, my, he has a couple of uh, 303 infields and uh, 30-06 um, Springfield. And he uh, talks about, he's like breaking, he said, I've broken four extractors. And, and uh, <clears throat> is asking, like, what's the deal, you know? Can I, and asking says, I've never, I've never before heard of anything like your difficulty. If it happened in wartime, the colonel would have had every man who broke his extractor court-martialed. You were just unlucky. Don't ever get into a war. You'll surely get killed. <laughs> Remington extractor should fit. It might be better. <laughs> yeah so yeah no the, uh yeah it, it's always funny when you know some of our online uh audience you know ends up clutching at their pearls for getting a little pushback from you or from me about whatever they might be spewing but you know they don't understand that uh, we come from a long line of, of assholes of assholes who aren't gonna who aren't gonna take kindly to your ignorant uh, thoughtless, um, comments. Yeah. So <laughs> no, it's, it's funny. I was, I always get a kick out of that, but it's, um, yeah, a lot, and a lot of, a lot of like stuff that I think P I think people just misunderstand and they, they're not when they, they misinterpret what you're saying or they, you know, they like, they, they get defensive about, you know, cause something you say, this cartridge might be better than your favorite cartridge in a certain way. And I mean, this is all just like, <laughs> just stuff we deal with on a daily basis. So it's all kind of always kind of at the front. Um, but I think a lot of people like when, you know, and I've tried to apply this to my own reading is like, well, what's actually being said, you know, it, it's easy to just flip a switch and see red as soon as you think, you think your sweetheart cartridge might be, might be getting, getting shit on. Yeah. Um, rather than just, you know, just objective details and something that I, like I've greatly benefited from, and it's been eye opening as well as just the, the volume of, and I'm, I'm sure I've talked about it on the podcast before, but, um, just the volume of testing and like the scrutiny and we're trying like constantly trying to make it better and better. And with the publication going digital, like it's kind of given us leeway to do that for, for a lot more guns and, uh, you know that that process, yeah, that process sometimes shows you things yeah, you you might not have discovered otherwise. You know the, the typical, and I think more important, more people are catching on. But the tip, you know, you get you buy your hunting rifle, you go shoot, you know, you get it zeroed and shoot a few groups, and one or two of them is a three round group under an inch. Well, you got a you got an inch shooting gun, right? And it's just you know the it's not nearly as impressive a lot of times or doesn't come across as Im impressive. You know, when I say, you know, this lightweight, super lightweight hunt rifle averaged 1.2 inch five shot groups, like it's pretty damn impressive in a lot of cases. And for a lot of cartridges, you just kind of, well, and in that case, that's actually a true average, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, you're, you're taking a big, 
a, a substantial data set of trigger pulls, you know, and, you know, barring some new cartridge that has limited ammo availability, we're shooting a, a variety of types of ammo, different bullet types, bullet weights, bullet manufacturers, you know, so when we end up with a, a big game rifle that averages, you know, five shot groups, you know, kind of between 1.1 and 1.2 inches, that's a damn fine shooting rifle, you yeah. know, and, and of course, you know, if we were just, you know, sort of uh, looking at, you know, sort of cherry pick three shot groups out of that, by God, we'd have a half inch rifle on our hands, yeah. right? But of course, you know, the, you know, what, we're looking for the the uh, typical performance, not the not the sort of coincidental, exceptional clustering of of bullets on on paper. Yeah, and none of it. In almost, it almost never means that a rifle, you know, <clears throat> a rifle that we're like, yeah, it's not that accurate. It, it almost never means that it's insufficiently accurate to hunt. I mean, I don't know that there's I've ever seen one that. I would be like, yeah, I, I don't feel good about hunting with this, but um, just that topic in general gets, yeah, like it's just that emotional, t- you know, it goes back to that emotional tie with your gun, your favorite cartridge, you know, like heaven forbid you suggest the 270 isn't as accurate as a 6.5 Creedmoor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Holy shit, you know, you know, how dare you, sir? <laughs> and it's just like, like, yeah, you can, lo- you know. You you on how you factory rifle average factory rifle at factory ammo the you know. well and and again I mean they all have to come with the caveat for the kind of shooting you do Mr Audience member and your needs you know for big game hunting you're probably not going to see a big difference and your and your two seventy isn't gonna um, have any meaningful um, you know deficiency for lack of a better term in terms of a six five creed for example you know that that you know. And and for or the, even six five PRC or six five, but, yeah. but, but, but what I'm saying is, you know, car, old cartridge A is not going to suffer against when compared to new cartridge B for the vast majority of basic big game hunting scenarios. Mm-hmm. You know, have at it. You know, in, enjoy it. But but when, it's understandable why some of these new cartridges are as popular as they are. Yeah, well, they are better. I yeah. mean, like when you really start to look at. Um, their capabilities, whether it's the recoil management thing mm-hmm. I was talking about, you know, because their, you know, their bullet design is for this like tremendous efficiency downrange. Yeah. So that you know, you're, you're not paying the recoil price up front, you know, and you're reaping better benefits downrange. Well, that is a really strong indication of why it's better. One reason why it's better. And then, you know, we get into the weeds, you know, it's the, you know, you look up modern cartridge design, you know, just Google that and you'll see the the article I did that, you know, sort of kind of steps through like all of the bits and pieces of modern cartridge design of these, of these principles that we're using um, or, or engineers are using to make cartridges that are just, you know, kind of better. We're using our, our collective, knowledge to create the best types of cartridges we can um, based on on you know the components we have today these great bullets these temperature and sensitive really consistent powders you know better brass making techniques you know and and certainly better all the, machine work uh, yeah better machine work by far too right i mean we're we're yeah. in an age where you know you can get a, a good action a good barrel hang a nice trigger off it screw it together yourself in your garage put it in a stock and have a really fine shooting rifle which i have i'm gonna 
my plan is to throw together a couple different got stuff in the works to put a couple different rifles together myself this winter and yeah i mean that, i mean that, yeah i mean that, and that's just like cool to me i mean it's yeah. kind of you know and in and, 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 and a sense it represents sort of the not the death but like sort of the the passing of an era of like quality gunsmithing where you know it was like this sense of mystery and you really had to well it's kind of like your 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 buddy who is just has such deep knowledge on the grands the the, the m1s yeah. and, the, and the carbines you know there is so much institutional knowledge there that you're not going to be able just to screw one of those guns together and have it work and make it work yeah but you know with these fine machining tolerances and sort of pre-fit barrels and just you know, uh, uh, tolerance is held in an action just to a, you know, tens of thousands of an inch, you know, yeah, we do have the ability now we're spoiled now to like be able to just to screw these guns together in these great cartridges and end up with just phenomenal shooters. And, and even for the, even just the mod, you know, the bullets and powders in, in the, in the old, in the older cartridges, you know, the boost, but you know it does boost their performance as well but it's uh you that's, know, that's right there's a, that's right that that effect goes backwards yeah. and so it's kind of like you with your 300 h you know you loaded you know some decidedly not traditional yeah. old school bullets <laughs> yeah. right you know and and you know and got like much better velocity than you should out of a three you know with no not even pushing the limits kind of a you know more or less medium medium to yeah, maybe like 75% in the spectrum of medium to, you know, max loads. I didn't want, you know, there was no need to push it, but right. I ended up with some really like 300 H and H with one eighties doesn't shoot 3,100 feet per second or, you know, 30, yeah. 30, 50. But, um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's good news for everybody ultimately. Um, and, uh, you know, another like example, you know, the kind of, like the efficiency, you look at the the 270, which was always noted for, you know, pretty mild recoil. And depending on the rifle, like, I mean, I got a 270 and a Model 70 Featherweight that, that kicks harder than my 30-06. Like, it's not a slouch, but the 6.8 Western, which is not, you know, I don't know that that's ever going to really set the world on fire, but it's designed around the same principles, the modern cartridge design principles. You know, you can shoot... Which you can, you know, you can, you can in theory, and I think Browning is making some of their X bolts with a tight twist 270 Winchester barrel to mm-hmm. accommodate 175 grain bullets. But that 6.8 Western, you know, with um, a 175 grain tip match king is faster and much more efficient than a 270 Winchester with about the same recoil. Yeah. You know, it's pretty, it's a pretty, you know, it's kind of like a, it's, it's like, it's a WSM type cartridge that's tweaked for more, you know, for that heavy bullet, but it's a pretty mild cartridge to shoot. Yeah. And actually you sort of touched on another thing or, or brought another thing to mind, which is like when you listen to, you know, again, the, the O'Connors or Carmichael's or um, Townsend Whalen or whoever back in the day, they all did make a pretty big point of, having an appropriately weighted rifle for a given class of cartridge, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we're in this era of ultralight whiz bang materials. And, you know, so the, so like a, a, a typical, you know, unscoped big game rifle back in the day would be, um, you know, eight and a half pound rifle. Mm-hmm. And by today's kind of standards, 
that's pretty that's a heavy. Brick, man. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah a, a bit of a brick, but that would be a, a two seventy thirty out six class mm-hmm. rifle at that point. And so, you know, of course, people made lighter rifles back then too, and they made a big deal about it. But the but the typical rifle, you know, had more heft to it than I think most people would think comfortable today in a, in a typical gun. And so when people are talking about handling the recoil more easily of an OT six or a two seventy back then, well, they're talking about a heavier rifle system mm-hmm. um, as well. You know, and, and of course that can get made up a little bit. You know, people are putting big heavy scopes on rifles, yeah. you know, things, you know, these optical systems that are much more um, involved, often bulky, and so forth than uh, than back then. So that kind of counters that a little bit. But anyway, the the point being, you know, when people were talking about, you know, you read John Taylor or Finn Asgard, you know, or guys who, you know, specialized in a lot of like African big game danger stuff, like big bore things, you know, they're shooting 375s and, and, and various 40 caliber centerfire bullets. You know, it's very common for them to talk about the necessity of a 12 and a half pound rifle or a 13 pound rifle, depending on how big a blaster you're you're going with. So, you know, and, and I think we've gotten away from that a little bit in sort of modern kind of firearms discourse. Everything's yeah. about ultralight, right? Ultra, yep, yep. And uh, yeah, it's it, it's funny how. I mean, this is maybe kind of stepping back a little bit earlier. I thought of it. It came to mind. But how, uh, how, you know, looking at these different cartridges and really maybe taking like a different look or a more objective look at what, you know, what a bullet needs to do to kill an animal cleanly as opposed to, I think a lot of people's selection of cart, you know, it's like big cartridge good or you've got, you know, use enough gun behind your bald head on the shelf there. <laughs> you know, I think a lot of the people's, it's just like big gun good, you know? So a lot of the, like cartridge selections, a little bit arbitrary, you know, like I have been told that you need a 338 win mag at a minimum to kill grizzly bears, you know, never mind that a, a, a stick with, with, with a sharp rock on the end of it can shoot all the way through them. But it's just, it's very, it's very interesting. And I mean, it's easy for me to get sucked into my own ways of thinking on stuff, but, um, you know, the, the grizzly bear that's been much talked about, you know, if I should, like, I, I, that's my, that's my, my shining example of, you know, I'll show you this video and I, you know, you guess what it was shot with, or I could tell you, I shot that with my, my 338 or my 375 and it, Probably would not have been. I just don't think I would have been able to get three whole shots off with my three seventy five that quick. <laughs> well, it, it, exactly. Well, and it's kind of funny, you know, because use enough gun is is you know uh, one of Ruark's books, and I, I like Ruark's writings and I enjoy his stuff. But the the fact is, he was a toxic alcoholic who was a horrible shot who should probably never have been even allowed to handle a firearm, let alone write about him. Yeah. And uh, you know, and and that's the I, I formed that opinion based on dealing with people who knew him well. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not pulling that out of my proverbial butt. But, um, yeah, so it's it's kind of funny when you get this story behind the stories. Yeah. No, like you said, you know, it's a it's a small world. You get, you get bits of information, then you can kind of start to put a picture together in your mind of, 
of you know, and that applies to a lot of given situations. But uh, before I forget, so like you know, I had the guy asking about a twenty-eight nozzler. So, which ironically, a twenty-eight nozzler was a cartridge. Of, you know, before moose hunting, these you know these guys, I think, told you showed up and showed up and uh, an episode not too long ago. My good buddy, you know, Doctor Frank Schultz. <laughs> saying, uh, you know, he kind of talked about it. These guys all showed up just running, yak, 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 you know, and they're trying to, you know, zero rifles at 100 yards just flailing. And the guy, uh, you know, I can't remember how the conversation got started. Or, no, he was telling them, telling them, oh, this rifle's good all the way down there to the berm, which is like 330 yards. I said, yeah, so is this one. I had a 22. I was shooting a, like a Bergara 22 that I was right. shooting. And I, like the previous time out there had been just having fun dropping bullets onto a plate out there. But, uh, his rifle was a 28 nozzle guaranteed to a thousand yards. Guaranteed to a thousand. And not to knock the nozzle because, you know, they're, they're cool cartridges, but why don't you like, uh, you know, explain some of the, you know, like just what those nozzler cartridges are and maybe some of their advantages or deficiencies, particularly the 28. The you know? 28. Well, okay. So here's actually, it's, it's relatively simple. Like you can get, well, looking at the, at those, those, uh, proprietary nozzler cartridges, the ones that bear the nozzler name, you know, and the, and the 28 is as good as an example, you know, the 26 is a really good one as well. You know, those were designed around the idea of speed at all costs. You know, so all you have to do is just stack that 28 nozzler round, like next to, like, well, heck, 7PRC is a, mm-hmm. is a great kind of counterpoint because that sort of a, you know, embodies the other sort of style of design philosophy. And you could just vis- and visually, you get the story right there. You get this long, thick, you know, kind of cigar profile 28 nozzler with um you know this design for like maximum powder capacity and if you get into the weeds on the neck dimensions and so forth you know it's not as forgiving for um for some of the bigger heavier for caliber um bullets that that are really kind of nice in that seven millimeter class you know these 175s these 180s so well and know, even even heavier don't they there's some that are even heavier than the 180 than yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's some go up but you know we'll just take a, a quick step back you know so you know we'll compare this like really quickly to the sort of the iconic um seven rem mag load you know it's like 162 grain load you know and that was sort of kind of a sweet spot for that cartridge in terms of its performance and barrel twist and everything mm-hmm. else of course the seven rem mag can accommodate a bunch of different bullets i'm not saying it it, yeah. it, it can't but in terms of like kind of what, what its sweet spot is, is is bullets around that 160 you know two grain class you mm-hmm. know kind of give or take and um you know the and the 28 and of course that seven rem mag was also built around the principle of of speed mm-hmm. you know and that and that's why I lusted after one so hard and in yeah. fact killed my very first whitetail buck. It was a spike <laughs> at, at about 35 yards with a seven <laughs> red mag, you know, and I couldn't have been, and I'll tell you what, man, that just cemented that cartridge in my heart. Yeah. So, um, you know, which is kind of obviously kind of funny, but the, so the 28 Nosler, you know, the, it, it, it's possible to get ones that shoot well and it's, and it's earned a reputation among, you know, kind of open country shooters who want sort of that magic combination of flat shooting, hard hitting and 
so on and so forth. And and it's possible to get that performance out of 28. And enough guys have kind of gotten that, that they're, that they're happy with it. But there's another side to that story. One is that the cartridge dimensions really are not, don't accommodate bigger bullets well. You know, you don't want, you know, to, to, to get a, a 28 nozzler to feed in a, in it's the the magazine length for which it was designed. If you go with some of these bigger ballistically aero efficient sevens, you're going to be pushing the base of that bullet way back into the case. And you know there are a couple couple problems with that um, that have to do with like achieving consistent ignition and and propulsion. You know, obviously, you know we don't have to get into it, but you know, really accuracy is, is, has everything to do with consistency, you know, consistency in the construction of the rifle system, the ammunition, the run out of the bullet, consistent velocities, consistent sort of ignition powder within the interior ballistics that you experience inside a cartridge case. And obviously consistency in terms of your marksmanship technique, right? Consistency is key. So one problem with that 28 is with those bigger bullets um, seated back into the case, well, you're compromising consistency because what can happen is that depending on how that um, the ignition goes in the interior of that case, powder the pressures can bear against the that base of that bullet in there and kind of make it go cockeyed a mm-hmm. little bit before it enters the rifling. And obviously, if if a bullet enters the rifling cockeyed. This is, you know, called PAT is the is the acronym um, for this um, axis tilt, this primary or sorry, primary principle. Anyway, this axis tilt where where basically the bullet isn't started correctly in the rifling. Once it starts incorrectly in the rifling, it maintains that, and that's going to have a, a, a degrading effect on its precision downrange. So, and and in fact, there's even you know on some. There's even evidence to suggest that sometimes the base of that bullet will even get bent. Hmm. So not only are you torquing the bullet enough to tip it and have it just like, you know, your straight bullet just entering cockeyed, there's actually some evidence that suggests that that base of that bullet can actually get bent. And and, and clearly you don't have to be a genius to realize that's not the best thing for accuracy. So from the standpoint of rifle makers, custom rifle builders, even people like Proof Research or other people building barrels, they hate chambering in the 28. That cartridge gives them fits like basically like no other in terms of getting good results because it is a finicky cartridge. It's not, you know, it's, you know, compared compared to the six five Creed more, even the six five PRC, but the six five Creed is just such a forgiving cartridge. Or even a three oh eight. A good three oh eight is also very forgiving in its yeah. own way, right? You know, we don't have to talk about the two two three, five five six. Right. You know, they're, they're you know, very... they're, they're very forgiving cartridges to to kind of handle, deal with, build around. The twenty is not forgiving, you know, and so if you talk to custom rifle makers, custom, you know, barrel builders, or even high-end barrel builders, you know, they will point to a a, a bevy of of issues that they have getting those things to shoot well. They don't generally enjoy making rifles in those, in in the 28, 
even though the customer base is still there and there's there's a mm-hmm. big fan base. So, you know, it's a little bit of a complicated story, I guess. And this isn't to damn the 28. I mean, it, is it is are some of the other ones like the the 26 and 30 a little bit more forgiving in that? Well, the respect? 26 is utterly not forgiving. Not forgiving. And, and probably actually, you know, really you know, if I were to pick one of the Nosler cartridges like for my own, like to do, I would do the 33. Yeah, that that's a that's a pretty damn cool cartridge, and that's I mean it's a thumper, you know you're mm-hmm. gonna you're gonna feel it when you pull the trigger on that. But in terms of its kind of cartridge design, you know, versus bullet diameter and stuff, that's a pretty neat round. But I've shot you know I've shot the twenty seven nozzler a lot, the twenty six. I've shot the twenty eight a bit, not as much. I've shot the thirty. I mean, heck, you know, and even the twenty two nozzler. Of course, that's a yeah. whole different you know class of of cartridge, you know, not the, not sort of the same family, but you know, I mean, they're good cartridges. I don't mean to impugn the system, but the fact is, is that 28 was built around the concept of speed at all costs. And, you know, given the, the kind of the, the, the neck dimensions on and the shoulder position and everything else, it's a, it's a difficult cartridge to, to create consistent good results with from a manufacturing side of things yeah. you know and that and that's just the facts if you've got one that shoots lights out one hole well cherish that baby hang on to it you know yeah. you, you've you've got a winner um, but a lot of other people have struggled with the cartridge yeah no that's interesting and and <clears throat> looking at you know um you know a lot of the well i say pushback you know commentary on the seven like the seven prc you know people look at the seven mag and oh the PRC doesn't do anything a seven mag can't, but and part of this whole deal of like modern cartridge design is it, it improves the dimensions and tolerances, you know, factory rifle, factory ammo, like they're just indisputably better. Um, cause like, you know, you could take a seven mag and it, you know, you get a barrel with the throat pushed out a little bit and you could shoot super ultra heavy bullets in it, you know, well, probably all, achieve, yeah. probably achieve similar, stuff but you know when you can buy this $500 Mossberg Patriot or whatever it is off the shelf and, and have it be a shooter with factory ammo it's a uh, yeah I mean to me I always think it kind of funny when you talk about like I don't know, like a 264 Winchester versus a 6.5 PRC or something like that. And people are like, well, all you have to do is, you know, use a different throat and give it a different twist and do a different this and, and it does nothing that the other one can't do. <laughs> yeah. And I'm kind of like you realize you're making my case for me yeah. here. I mean, you're basically, you're saying if I do a custom, you know, makeover on this rifle, well, then yeah. it'll do everything your factory one does. Yeah. Okay. Exa- well, exactly. <laughs> one interesting thing that, you know, I read, you know, read O'Connor talking about the 270 was that, that it seemed like that the powder capacity of the 270 was about as much, is about as great as you could efficiently burn behind that bullet you know he talked about some of his buddies who tried out some big huge you know whiz bang mags as he described them and really like didn't get any better results we uh i well one of my sheep rifles my buddy steve hollenbeck built for me uh was in what we call like a 27 o'connor and kind of his idea is like oh, like a kind of a little bit hopped up 270 that that you know we could envision jack wanting to shoot in hindsight like yeah maybe maybe he wouldn't like it as much as the 270 Winchester, but uh, it's just a two a 280 improved neck down to 270, and you get a little bit of a bump, but it's not crazy. It's not, you know, it's a good, it's a pretty good performing cartridge, but um, 
kind of a fun one, but it just, you know, with the more you learn about all this, it's like, yeah, you know, you don't, you don't get a huge bump by, by bumping the powder capacity up. Um, that was just, And and then of course there's the other side of this that people often don't think about when they comparing old versus new cartridges. There's the, the stuff we've been focusing on, which is like sort of the, the shoulder angle of the case and maybe even the taper of the case and where it head spaces, if it head spaces off a belt or a shoulder or whatever. And, um, and, and then like even get into the weeds of like, well, how much neck is there available in that case to support the bullet? You know, mm-hmm. you want an adequate thing there. But then of course there's the, the flip side of a, of a cartridge is the chamber design, right? You know, and so you look at the Sammy specs on some of these old cartridges where, you know, there is this just sloppy, like throwing the hot dog down the hallway amount of leeway that's given for the throat or, you know, for the, the well, that's how, Be- how Bex or buddy Beckstrand like describes the, you know, the, like the original Sammy specs on the 300 wind mag. Exactly. You know, it has like almost, was it the free bore before it hits the rifle? has like almost, almost the same diameter as the bullet <laughs> or almost the same length as the 308, you know, bullet diameter. Like it's a, and the you know the 300 wind mag is like almost awkwardly a deeply seated bullet. They still shoot. They st- you know you get a good a good chamber. They still shoot well. Yeah, obviously, but um, yeah, it's but, just interesting. Yeah, and 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 but those are those are the places. Like if you're in you know because you know we've said it, I've said it. You know you know we don't make cartridges like we used to. We make them better. Yeah. You know, and it's you know kind of the the easy analogy is like trucks. You know, pickup trucks. You know, as as good as a seventies era Ford F one fifty might have been, nobody's going to compare that to a modern truck and say, well, we haven't learned anything about making a better truck. Well, I got and I got a funny example. You, funny you bring that up. I uh, I was gassing up my boat. I think this fall or this summer. And a guy pulled up behind me in a you know, like mid seventies F F one fifty, you know, just cool truck. That's what I learned to drive on. And uh, he, you know, he and I, you know, like that's a nice, nice truck, man. I said I, I want, you know, I keep my I've kept my eyes open for years, and I like don't have the money to just chill up. There, there, the the value has gone a little bit beyond what I'm willing to pay for one, but. I'm just admiring. I'm like, yeah, nice truck. You know, I'd, I'd love to get one of those. He's like, yeah, it's nice till wintertime, <laughs> which reminded me of my own first truck was an 83 Ford, but I would have to get cold, you know, get 30 below or colder. When I was driving anywhere, I'd have to be sitting on one hand, sitting on one hand to keep it warm while I'm driving with my gloves in the other. Cause the, you know, just the heat, just the damn heater, you know, and, and then you, I'm sure if I went back to driving one of those, trying to drive it on ice and stuff, it'd be like, holy shit, this thing sucks. Yeah. You and, and you'd probably be like, uh, where are my brakes? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yep. Um, Anti-lo- anti-lock disc brakes all around. That's a little bit different than the stuff that you and I drove when we were kids. Like, yep. you know, that's, you know, and, and again, it's not a one-to-one analogy in terms of cartridge design, but the, but the idea is the same. You know, we've just learned a lot more about how to do this better. And so, you know, these, these modern cartridges that people, oh, the gun companies are just trying to sell us more guns. Well, yeah, believe it or not, that's how they stay in business. You know, yeah. newsflash. I, yeah. I, I hate to break the, you know, I mean, you revealed the big secret. It is a dirty secret. Those dang gun companies trying to sell you new guns, yeah. you know. But also, and I think people, you know, it's a perspective from reading old stuff. Like, nothing's changed. You know, they've all, like, 
all the hundreds of cartridges and guns and stuff that you know they're they've always been developing new guns and it's it wasn't like in the golden they like all right these are your four guns that you got to choose from and that's all you'll ever need and then that's and right. then they were good you know and then every every new gun after that is just some 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 dirty marketing scheme exactly one thing i will say that's different though and this this is to, applies this is beyond just the firearms world this is to in our general thing you know you know when you're developing a new product like if you're if you're a bean counting executive at one of these companies and we'll just assume we're at a firearms company you know, you, you do look at, you do forecast things based on a particular like life cycle, mm-hmm. you know, an expectation of like, well, you know, if we develop, you know, if we develop the 338 Freel, you know, and we want to, and we want to market this, you know, and well, here's our initial investment. Here's what our forecast is for kind of demand in years, you know, two, three, five or whatever. But then at some point we're going to say, well, it's probably going to taper off, you know, so our expectation for you know, in this case, the 338 Freel being, you know, we're not looking to create an eternal cartridge. You know, if we get five, six years out of it, we that actually we might be happy with that. And so there is a sense in which the expectation for a lot of these cartridges that are introduced isn't to last throughout the ages. Obviously, if you strike gold, you know, and you and something really resonates, like I don't think the 6.5 Creed is going anywhere for a long time. Um, you know, good on you. You know, you've really, you've really got a, a good product that you can kind of build in, in, in the case of the 6.5 Creed, basically a whole industry off. I mean, everybody chambers in it. Everybody's making projectiles for it. Everybody's loading ammo for it. I mean, it's kind of a rising tide floating all boats sort of scenario, but then you'll have something, you know, but we, there's still plenty of 338 Federals out there, yep. which is a damn fine cartridge, yep. you know, and it had its moment in the sun for, you know, four or five years. And, Heck, I, I, I mean, I loved that cartridge. I killed, like I hunted with it, not exclusively, but predominantly for about four or five years and just used it on everything from bear and moose and elk and deer and, you know, antelope, you name it. Like, I mean, basically all the sort of the basic spectrum of North American big game, big to small, love it, but it's done. You know, I mean, it's not going to magically kind of re, you know, kind of rise phoenix like from the ashes you know well i imagine you know companies looking looking at their new cartridges and whatnot um i mean they've got a lot of history to look back on because it was i mean since metallic cartridges were invented there's been just constant efforts to create new ones i mean it like non-stop for well over 100 years you know it's not and so i'm sure they can look back and see average i mean the bean counters play the numbers you know and there i'm sure there's that that factor too of like all right you know what's a reasonable in fact i mean what's a reasonable expectation for x cartridge that we're wanting to develop um you know and and you can see throughout history or you know the metallic cartridge history like a relatively small number of them have persisted for very long at all yeah yeah, no, it's true. And I think, you know, historically back in the day, you know, they probably had a, a broader time horizon expectation, you know, that things did move at a slightly slower pace back then, no doubt about it. And so I can kind of appreciate the the idea that, you know, today's consumer sort of maybe feels like stuff's always getting shoved down their throat. There's always mm-hmm. some new thing. But and, and I think, you know, again, I think there has been 
a greater amount of, of that happening. But also, you know, I mean, we've got all of these great smaller gun makers, you know, because of the way manufacturing works and the scale at which people can efficiently manufacture, whether it's somebody like Fierce Firearms is a good mm-hmm. example, or, you know, Glenn Seekins, you know, at Seekins Precision, um, you know, Christensen has kind of been growing you know, sort of, you know, so they're sort of in this like kind of almost in between phase, but not everything has to be on the scale of a, of a Winchester or a Ruger or a Savage, you know, to kind or of make, a Remington, may they rest in peace. <laughs> yeah. May, may, may they, yeah. Well, it's, I guess they're it's, still, they're, they're back, back into making some guns. Well, they're making some, some shotguns. I got, I got a, 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 a nasty email from their CEO when I, in, uh, said that they're you know kind of lurching like zombie like with their new 700 because we just haven't seen much evidence of it you know and again this is something where you know some of our colleagues in the gun world you know they got an early look at at you know this supposed new model from Remy 10 and they sort of gushed about it like you know looking at looking at the clock like yeah like a couple of years ago right look <laughs> a couple of years ago and you know we did not jump on that bandwagon because you know I was personally a little suspicious about their ability to actually do that and I actually also knew the origin of those rifles they were looking at were basically remnants from Remington's custom shops. That wasn't anything new they had built. Those were um, kind of prototype guns that, you know, Remington had been wanting to come out with a, for a few years and uh, an updated 700 action, which they desperately need. Oh, it would be great to have 700s, like an updated 700 up on the shelf again. Right, you know, because we have all these great 700 clones out there yeah. that have you know, side bolt releases and toolless takedown and, you know, other, other kinds of features that, you know, can, you know, just consistent, you know, <laughs> tolerance holding and stuff like that, you know? So there's, there's no lack of really excellent 700 clone actions on the market, you know, but you know, the, the stock 700 was just, you know, just sort of the, sort of the thin thread, threadbare thin basis for those, um, clones and, you know, Remington, you know, if it's ever gonna, you know, unscrew itself and and get back into the rifle market in a meaningful way, they're going to have to crack the code on a on an updated action that's you know affordable mm-hmm. in terms of like sort of the scheme of affordability. Not that it has to be budget, but you you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, you know, it's absolutely vital for them to kind of figure that out, and I really hope they do. I mean, you know, even even though the um, the CEO at the company took exception to what I was saying. You know, one, I, I was right. And two, um, I want Remington. We need, you know, the American sporting scene without Remington firearms is a sad thing it indeed. Is. I don't, <laughs> that's not a reality I would um, applaud or feel good about. In fact, it'd make me very sad. And, you know, given the number of self-inflicted wounds that the leadership at Remington over, you know, these are different generations of leadership has inflicted. I mean, that... It's, I mean, in some ways, it's a miracle the company kind of staggered along as long as it did um, before collapsing twice. Um, and it really was self-inflicted um, tragedy as as well. You know, the way that the holding company ended up, you know, the Cerebus people who bought them and, and kind of that whole big family of brands all that of which freedom all, group the freedom group the, all all of which you know they they just screwed all those brands over royally those guys were a bunch of idiots 
Um, you know, and it was very clear to us, you know, watching them do it, that this was not going to end well. But anyway, their, their, their final act was to load up Remington with all the debt that they had, you know, kind of acquired, you know, basically they paid themselves back to make money back on their venture capital thing. And, and then left the company with the, and the left bag. the company <laughs> with this, with this mountain of debt that there was no way they were going to ever be able to satisfy. So they, I mean, they, they killed the company. They really did. And, you know, we've got some people who are trying to get it back on its feet, but, you know, and I really hope they do, you know, the new shotguns, the new eight seventies, we, we've had really good things to say about those. Um, and I really hope that they do something in this 700 line as well. But, you know, until I see something more concrete, um, from them in terms of sustained manufacturing capability, you know, I'm not going to jump up and down and tell you to go get one because, you know, we've got a, we, we, we need some proof before we, before we get yeah. excited about it. And, uh, as I was, I say, <laughs> so yeah, before you, before the stoic Jon Snow gets excited about it, which reminded me of, uh, <laughs> the, uh, before we wrap up, it'd be, uh, you know, we're fortunate to be able to, to try out a bunch of new stuff a lot of times. And I'll tell people like, yeah, you're, pretty hard guy to get excited about not that you know, i mean you love gun stuff obviously but you know you see enough of it that it takes a lot to get you excited or or like really impressed and i when i'm the few people i was kind of saying hey keep an eye out for this new garmin this new garmin chronograph i, I would say well john doesn't get excited about anything and he's called me like three times to gush about it how cool it is um before you know it was ever released um, yeah, why don't you like run, run us through a little bit of that? Cause the things, I mean, it's made waves and you probably have the most thorough kind of review published. You were able to get one ahead of time and, you know, you've used every chronograph under the sun and we're, you know, where lab radar was the king and it's, I guess, no longer so, huh? No, not, not, not by a long shot. I mean, the, the, the simple, the simple fact is that this new Garmin chronograph, it's the zero spelled X E R O C one pro. Cause they also have these Garmin zero other sites, you know, other, other products. But anyway, the, the chronograph, the Garmin zero C one pro is a, um, category redefining product, you know? So I don't know the, the, the analogy that came to mind was like when Apple introduced the iPod, you know, we all had these big shelves of CDs and stuff, and then all of a sudden, the, the no skip, the yeah. no skip disc man, yeah, the no <laughs> yeah. skip disc, and that, then all of a sudden, everything was down in this thing the size of a pack of cards, and it held, you know, thousands. And we we're like, what? You know, this yeah. is this is you know, and this is basically and the world was never the same in that category, and the world was never the same in that category, and you know, that's what this Garmin Zero is in the chronograph world. You know, like as Tyler mentioned, you know, and, and a lot of serious shooters, you know, chronograph is is an essential tool for my work and my hobby and everything else. And so I've used everything from the old Ailer, you know, 35P um, to the, you know, other different, you know, sort of, you know, you know, crony master type things to the magneto speeds to the lab radar. And, you know, all of those systems work, but they have significant shortcomings in terms of they're bulky, they're hard to set up, they're finicky in terms of environmental condition. Um, you know, they're just awkward to use. Sometimes 
They're inconsistent in terms of their ability to pick up shots, depending on what you're doing. I mean, they all have a lot of drawbacks. And sort of until the Garmin was released, you know, the two state-of-the-art products were the Lab Radar and the Magneto Speed. And, you know, both of them kind of have their advantages. But the big advantage of the Lab Radar was that, you know, it's not attached to the gun the way the Magneto Speed is. You know, so you're not you're not going to be dealing with that issue of maybe experiencing some point of impact shift by mm-hmm. adding something to your barrel. And, of course, there are certain kinds of mounts that, that a Magneto Speeder was able to do that sort of monkeyed around that. But that was, you know, again, kind of a little bit of a Rube Goldberg uh, sort of attachment process and and not something everybody was going to engage. You know, and I really like the Magneto Speed, by the way, and I really like my Lab Radar too. The Lab Radar was fabulous because once you sort of learned to operate it, um, you know, you could record a lot of data while getting group sizes and and you know with with enough experience, you know, I could you know shoot at some targets at five hundred and you know, for example, like let's just say I'm getting a competition gun up and running. You know, I could shoot at some targets at 500 while capturing that data. Maybe I've done some reloading stuff, and then I could pivot over to a, a target at a grand. You know, I could pivot the unit and still capture all of that mm-hmm. velocity data. So that if for some reason something was really off there, like I had one uh, round that maybe for whatever reason was 150 feet per second slower than my average, just for whatever reason, and it hit, you know, two tenths low on that target. Well, you know, now I know, you know, I know the more, the the more like, just like accuracy, the more data you can collect easily. Yeah. Like the more it tells you about the, the, it paints the the picture of your your system. Anyway. And, and anyway, but you know, there were still all of these dang drawbacks, you know, about the lab radar. And, you know, uh, know, the other thing is that lab radar didn't really evolve from when it came out, it, it felt like the people who developed it were just like kind of a one and done sort of like deal. Like there was no effort on them to say, hey, how can we serve our customers better? How can we deal with some of the complaints and shortcomings? You know, the the button sucked. You know, you couldn't really run it on batteries. And didn't it, didn't didn't a lot of uh, a lot of people have? I don't know if it's. Um supposed to work just on like sense the shot but i you know see a lot of like why there's like a wire that you can a sensor that you run to your gun to tell it to record the shot exactly so depending on whether you're running a muzzle brake a regular kind of you know just naked barrel or a suppressor you have to position everything differently to pick it up and really what you ended up the the best thing I did with the lab radar was purchase a, a magnetic trigger sensor. It plugged into a port on the thing and it was, it was an accessory. It was like 30 bucks or 20 bucks. And, and basically then that magnet sits on your, um, on your receiver and on the recoil vibration that tells the thing to like, look for the signal, you know, and, and that was like the most consistent way to make sure that you were recording shots. So when I was doing load development and, you know, maybe I've only got you know, three rounds at a given charge weight, you know, I'm doing a little bit of a ladder test. I want to mm-hmm. kind of get to a certain velocity or whatever. And, you know, each one of those, you know, so I've like, let's just say I've, I've loaded up 12 rounds, four different charge weights, three rounds each, 
you know, I, I, I do that. Obviously that takes time to do that. Then I've got to assemble all my stuff, go to the range, get set up. You know, it's, it's a lot mm-hmm. of time to do that one cycle. I can't, you know, I, I wish I had a place where I could just load and shoot, Yeah, you know, but I'm in town here. That's just not my reality and, or nor is it the reality for most people. And, you know, and if you go out there and then suddenly, you know, in those 12 shots, you lose one or two velocities because the lab radar was finicky, which was entirely possible. It was just a very frustrating thing to deal with because you just feel like, not that you wasted your time, but you didn't get what you needed either. Okay, so uh, enter enter the Garmin uh, chronograph. It basically, every every objection, every issue that we've had with chronographs to date, you know, and I kind of sort of in a rambling way sort of like kind of breezed over them it addresses it's easy to set up it's tiny it fits in your pocket it's basically the size of a gopro it comes with this little um little kind of tripod thing it powers up simply you just stick it on the bench sort of near your gun just point it down range it doesn't take any special orientation its user interface is really kind of bright and easy to read it has a really nice screen on it and the power supply on it, this is, this is, I mean, again, there's so many things that blew me away about this thing, but like you can charge this thing up and shoot it for a month. Wow. And, and like what kind of battery life would you get out of a lab radar? You know, an intense day of shooting with the lab radar would, well, I mean, here's the thing. You couldn't even use the batteries on the lab radar. You had to get an external battery pack. Oh. And so, you know, the lab radar to really make it a functional kit you know, required the purchase of this, you know, extra trigger. It required you to purchase and keep charge those bigger battery packs, and and, uh, uh, pro- and a tripod if you don't have if you didn't have one. And a tri- yeah, and, and, and it's a big like it's a freaking it's it's bigger a big, than a dinner plate. Yeah, it's a big blocky thing to carry around. It's also fragile, you know. So you know, it's it it's been known to blow a little bit here in Montana yeah. in terms of the wind. So if you have that thing mounted on a tripod, you just had to be very cognizant of what kind of winds you were dealing with. Because if that thing got blown over and fell from any significant thing, there's a good chance you just wrecked your. And thing. I think, like the base yeah. price, they were still over six hundred bucks, weren't they? Or yeah, five six hundred bucks, and then you had to buy this other stuff. So anyway, this new Garmin Zero is at five hundred ninety nine dollars. You know, again, that's a you know that's a good chunk of change. You know, and I understand for casual shooters, you know, they're they're probably not going to go for it. But for anybody who uses a chronograph, kind of for any amount of thing, I mean, I think you'd be nuts not to get one of these. You know, your degree of frustration will drop. It 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 works really well for um, handgun stuff, bow bow and arrow, crossbow mm-hmm. stuff, um, air gun stuff, uh, rifle. You know, heck, you can probably do it with a slingshot too. Um, I'm sure it'd work for that. And it's just it's just so forgiving. And so simple where like, I, again, the first few times I used it, I kept waiting for the other foot to drop. I'm like, this can't be, you know, it's like you encountered like sort of your dream girl or dream partner and you're like, this can't be this good. This yeah. can't, this can't last, <laughs> yeah. you know? And, and in fact it, it does, it charges through a simple USB-C um, thing, you know, it syncs up really nicely with your phone. Oh yeah. I was going to ask that about like, a, do they have a, uh, an app? For yep. It, yep. I'm there's a, there's a Garmin app for it. And, and really Garmin, you know, Garmin has been positioning themselves to, to kind of basically create this cool 
product, you know, if you're familiar with any of their like outdoor watches and stuff, you know that like power management is something they're well, really- like their inReach Mini is in, you know up in Alaska in the freaking you're a dumbass if you don't have an inReach and there's a lot of different types of satellite communicators, but inReach is the one that to go with and like that's what everybody uses and you know like I I have all three I have the I have the because I bought one of the original inReach GPS devices. The mini, which like the battery life was not nearly what the big, what the what the the original unit was. The mini two, which uh, I mean similar deal, I was able to get one kind of pre-release, and it just took. It, you can see the evolution in it. I mean, it just way optimized for battery life. Like the battery lasts way longer. So they, like they've, it seems like they've incorporated a lot of this technology into this. I, th- I think that yeah. what they've done is because you have things like the InReach and their GPS products. You have things like, you know, this fitness watch. I'm wearing their Tactic 7, um, which I use. I'm not fit enough to wear one of the fitness watches. Yeah, yeah, I'd just well. be depressing myself. They'd <laughs> 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 be telling me to go to the hospital. <laughs> exactly. You are obese. <laughs> you are obese. You know, but yeah, but the, but the power management in these watches is really impressive and stuff. And so they've carried that over into this. So, you know, they've got that institutional, that's one of their, you know, institutional skill sets is power management for mm-hmm. electric devices. And so I, I, you know, I mean, to me it is, I am just accepting the fact that they did it. I have no idea how they did it, but, um, you know, and it's kind of, and like, like I'll give a, for instance. So you pop this thing open on the bench and, uh, you know, you power it up and the, the screen is really simple. Like start a new session. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then there's a little menu like, well, what are you shooting? Oh, here's a bow. Here's this, here's that. And, um, you know, so you just cycle through that and then like on rifle, it gives you two speed ranges to choose from. One is from zero to 1750 feet per second, I think. And then it's 17, you know, yeah. then it's 1750 to 5,000, you know? So, I mean, Getting it set to, and then you just do that, and and by gosh, it's ready to go. And, you know, and I actually ended up turning this off. Like, the default thing actually has a little thing that gives you a little tutorial on where to set the unit in relation to what you're shooting. And typically, it was about, like, 5 to 15 inches off to the side or something. Mm -hmm. As it turns out, that's a bunch of baloney. You can pretty much set this thing anywhere, nearby and it's picking it up i mean it's good to have it sort of in relation but like of course as i'm testing this i'm like well what are the boundaries on this and so like one of the like among the things i did was you know i was shooting a um you know one of my staccatos actually down there and i just had nine mil range ammo and i'm like all right well you know i'm so i'm just standing there at the bench shooting over and of course it's recording stuff and then i'm like well let me take two steps to the side or step aside it's still getting them three steps still getting them so basically i found like if i was shooting i could be within about five or six feet on either side of this thing and it's picking up the shots so that sounds like still narrow enough of a window to where you're not going to be picking up the guy's shots at the next bench over. Yeah, no. I mean, yeah. it, unless you were like cheek by jowl, yeah. you're not going to pick that up. So, But it's incredibly forgiving. And here's the other thing that was cool, and I did this with the rifle and with the shot and with the handgun as well. You know, the you know, like I said, you just point this thing down range. You could I was able to kind of engage targets, you know, at my range, you know, they're sort of spread out there. I was able to shoot you know, across about almost a a 40 degree arc Mm -hmm. in front of me and it was still picking up everything. So it's not even like you have to like kind of tweak the unit, which would only take half a second anyway. Well, you're talking, 
instead of setting up a whole nother try, I mean, tripod, which elaborate are great. I don't have to set it down range. I can set it right next to my bench. You just pop this little thing, right? Just set it down next to your rifle on the bench. Set it and forget it. And so I have like taken this and now in terms of like practical use, especially for like the kind of stuff you and I do, you know, I was over in Austria a couple of weeks ago with Steyr and I was shooting a 30 six there and I had like limited kind of t- range time. Well, you know, you know, just to check zero on this. So anyway, I, I took it overseas with me. I, I just put it inside one of my hunting boots yeah. in my bag, right, and carried it that way and popped it on this bench and, like, did a, a three-shot group initially. You know, that's all, like, the kind of guide would let me do. But I got three good velocity things off that bench, so now I've got something to work with. And then even on my mule deer hunt – um that I just did with that, with that Browning and 300 PRC, you know, I had only been able to bore sight that gun. And fortunately I'm a good bore sighter. Like, you know, <laughs> in, ter- in terms of like sort of, prof- you know, professional skills, you know, as you know, like with what we do, we know how to mount a scope. We know how to like kind of bore sight pretty damn good. Like, you know, so I was already sort of in the, g- in the game there, but like this was, I arrived at camp, I gotten delayed and stuff. I arrived at camp after dark, and so we ended up like spray painting a piece of steel at a hundred with like a little yellow dot on it, put a headlamp on the ground to illuminate it. And I'm on, you know, not the greatest bench, not a terrible bench, but kind of a rickety portable yeah. bench in the dark. And I pop this thing open next to me and I'm like, just kind of boresighting this thing, getting it on and I'm recording good data with each shot. Yeah. And so by the time I got that thing zeroed, it didn't take long, but it took a little bit. Um, to kind of get it comfortable because I'm going to go hunt with the thing. I want to really know what it's doing. You know, by the time I had that process, I basically in a seamless fashion was able to gather really good velocity data and then create a ballistic profile to match. So I was able to roll into that next morning with a high degree of confidence Thanks to the how well that unit worked. I mean, I just can't yeah. sing its praises enough. Had no, yeah, no inconvenience. Exactly. I mean, it couldn't be more convenient. And uh, the one, the one thing that you know, hopefully they, and I would think maybe they can address whether you know firmware app something is the only downside. I think I've heard you talk about is that you couldn't, you can't necessarily break up a session, like alternate between shooting sessions. Like what I'll do when I go to the range, a lot of times, like to make good use of my time, I'll I like to bring at least I like to bring four guns is pretty optimal four rifles set my targets you know i'm you know i got a notepad i'm recording what loads what targets i'm shooting like we do at the gun test you know and uh i'll shoot you know five shot group switch rifle five shot group switch rifle five shot group switch rifle and by the time i'm back around the horn you know the barrels cooled down it keeps barrels from getting just screaming hot and spending time you know twiddling my thumbs waiting for barrels to cool because that is <laughs> irritating to me but uh that would be nice to be able to be like all right rifle one five shots boom next one rifle two you know there's workarounds that are maybe a little you know you could just record the data but um well it, w- it would be nice and this goes into like kind of our methodology and and the desire and pressure we have to have significant data sets for everything we do and so while it's all fine and good to record a five shot string and look at the velocity and look at your extreme spread and standard deviation and so forth you know it's much better to have a 20 shot string Mm -hmm. and so like to your point if i could 
take and like kind of like you i do the same we basically do the same thing you know multiple rifles you know move through them it would be really nice to be able to go back to the string of rifle one and keep adding shots to it Mm -hmm. and and honestly like the other thing that can happen is you can also start to get interesting data on cold bore first shots and kind of look you know chart it all out and stuff and yeah i mean it feels a bit um ungenerous of me to ping them on this because it's such a specific nerdy thing but it would be nice and the thing is they are going to support this there's going to be um you know firmware updates i mean as it is out of the box it's already by far the best thing going so it's only going to get better from there and and we're already seeing i've got i've got one uh, uh, area 419 mount because this thing is so tiny and so unobtrusive and so forgiving in terms of its orientation you're going to be able to mount these to your rifle so guys like from and from what i understand you know guys shooting a prs you know prs type match you know precision in the field you have it mounted on your rifle and you know long range you have a shot drop way low or go way high you can look and see if your velocity was in check just like another data point to that you could instantaneously Check. Am I, am I, is that like the main it, it, advantage it, for that? Exactly. Particularly for the ELR stuff. So like, you know, um, 100%, I am going to mount this to my, you know, my Accuracy International AXSR, you know, which I shot in 300 PRC last year, and I'm going to shoot in 300 PRC again this coming season in these extreme long ranges. Absolutely. You know, so it just gives you, you know, so if you're getting a strange result, you know, we're shooting at a target at 1900 yards, and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you see that thing drop low, you know, you're on the clock, you still have, you maybe have other targets to transition to or whatever, but like, if I can just glance over and take a look at that velocity and just kind of idiot check it, well, hell, that was 70 feet per second below my average. So, you know, I might favor up a 10th and throw another one and down. throw another one down there, but I'm not going to do the full correction. Or I see that my God, that was dead nuts on my on my velocity so i better believe the bullet in this case and because that's the conundrum in the in those things is you you have a bullet do something you don't expect it to it's do you trust the general average or do you do you or or, or, or do you need to make a, connect, a that's correction right. right that's right and especially at the, in, in that match that night force elr match the wind vectors can be so difficult to to suss out because it's broken it's like kind of a lot of it's like on badlands type terrain Mm -hmm. where you've got funnels and updrafts and you know and then there's also even a matter of understanding how the light at different times of day whether it's a slanting light or a direct light is going to affect what you're seeing what what you're seeing so i mean there's a lot of moving pieces to the puzzle and if you can quickly on the clock accurately at least look at that variable huge advantage and and honestly it's just nice to have so area 419 has this mounting system and i've been playing around with that and that's cool and uh, cnc ops you know dave preston's company dave's a uh a cool dude really spun up um precision rifle competitors has done very well in prs and other disciplines over the years anyway he he makes some really fun stuff so area 419 makes some of my favorite accessories and so does cnc and he's he's got a number of these mounts that um you know to to attach it to different ways so i'm i've got some of those on order and and what i'll do is as i get to mess around with them i'll i'll update that review yeah with kind of fresh fresh information so if you're interested 
you know, in this chronograph and these accessories, just, just Google the Garmin Zero C1 Pro and, you, you know, the outdoor or life. Or if, yeah, I think even if you just Google Garmin, Garmin chronograph review, I think your story's the top one. Yeah, well, it's going to be. You'll able, be able to find it. They'll be, they'll be able to find it if, if you kind of want to hear a little bit of the, in the weeds and how it works. But it really is, you know, it's, it's nice. You know, we were talking about this, you know, um, you know, and, and again, it's not like I, I'm trying to play a character and be stoic and hard to impress, but I just want to be measured in my praise. Yeah. I, I, I don't want to be, you know, one of these people who just gushes about every damn thing because, you know, you know, at the end of the day, well, like, then it makes it tougher to sort out what the hell is actually impressive, impressive and what's not. Yeah. You know. And, and, you know, I mean, one of the things, you know, not to, you know, be too self-congratulatory, but you know, you know, one of our perspectives that you and I have, and in fact, the whole outdoor life team has is when we're talking about gear, which we do a lot, you know, ultimately we're, you know, potentially recommending to our, our reader, our audience, you know, is, is the juice worth the squeeze? Like, can we in good conscience say, yes, you know, we recommend this as a $600 product. This is going to yield these benefits for you. So I'm always thinking about like, if I've got a buddy who's coming to me and just like saying, Hey, I'm thinking about this. What do you think? You know, I want to make sure that whatever I've written as a review is an accurate reflection of exactly what I would tell my buddy Mm -hmm. so that, you know, we're not giving people unrealistic expectations or, or wasting their time, wasting Mm -hmm. their time and money. I, I just hate that idea. So, and, and this is a product where, you know, again, if you like chronographs, you know, it's just cool to be able to like unreservedly gush about something that kind of has earned it. Yeah. No. And yeah, the, the number of applications and the people it's suitable for, you know, it's, you know, <laughs> you know, listening to us nerd out about all cartridges and stuff. You know, there's, you know, the guy that's, you know, just not, it's like, well, the 30 out six is totally fine for me. And it, and it is, but even, you know, any hunter, bow hunter, like, a, you know, chronograph can be a pretty valuable tool. So that's why it's, it's why it is so exciting to see one that's so easy to use and so effective. So that's, I mean, that's, that was one of the things I wanted to talk about it, just how cool that. Yeah. That I, I mean, that is and, and sort out because a lot of time, you know, a lot of new products that have a lot of PR behind them. You don't really know if they're worth it. And right. <laughs> well, and the thing that's cool about this thing is that for like the kind of the pro grade, the professional level user, you know, this has a lot of utility and it's perfect. But for like the casual person, you know, who might end up, who just wants to know what their good dope is, whether it's with a bow or, or with a, you know, with their 30 odd six, I mean, this is so easy to use the barriers to entry and frustration that you have with other traditional chronograph systems have just disappeared. So this is really not only great for like the pro level ballistic nerd but even for the casual guy who you know again when you think about maybe you're going to travel on you know a mule deer hunt out west with a new gun or an elk hunt or like anything where it's like a bigger cut at the plate and you think about all the time and money you're investing well having something like this chronograph on hand you know it's i'm not pretending 600 bucks is nothing because it's 600 bucks but when you start to think about the grief it can potentially save you for some other adventure that's running in the thousands, all of a sudden that price becomes a lot more justifiable. And there really are no shortcomings to it. It's tough. I inadvertently stepped on mine 
and nearly had a heart attack, you know, in my house because I'm a big clunky klutz. Um, it, I was just charging. It was sitting on my carpet. So, you know, it passed a really significant impact test. And and here's the the other thing that really gave me so much confidence. I, I initially was running it in conjunction with my lab radar and the, the values that both were spitting out were real close, which was, you know. Yeah, because com- that's, that's one of the, the, you know, the selling points of that lab radar is you're getting accurate. Right. Precise but even the, data. even with the lab radar, like you had to know how to set it up. Like yeah. I had so much like just experience with it that I knew that if I messed with it enough, I would actually get some different results. But the, but the thing that really like, and just another thing that seals the deal on the Garmin is that a couple of these early units were, um, had found their way to Hornaday and, you know, Hornaday has their gajillion dollar, Doppler, Doppler yeah. radar system that they use to develop um, sort of ballistic profiles for their app and you know for their Ford off system and their BC based ballistic calculator and, and they were running you know these these pre production test units side by side with their whiz bang system and it was basically the same like there was not a, a hair's breadth of difference between the two and so like once I heard that from those guys I'm like all right you know there's just and if and if you you know if six hundred dollars isn't in the cards, and you're willing you're you're a patient person, there's probably going to be a lot of cheap lab radars for sale. <laughs> That's right. Anybody who wants a lab radar to scream and deal, find me. You know, ping me on social media. I will I will make it worth your while. But you know, here's the other thing. You know, you've got a, a handful of buddies who you shoot with. You know, again, this thing is so portable, so easy to use. You know, I, I could easily see just splitting the cost between two or three guys and all yeah. of a sudden, you know, hey, you know, so there are a lot of ways, you know, to skin that cap. But yeah, no, if anybody's looking for a good deal on a lab radar, <laughs> please, by all means, I'm your man. Oh, all right, man. Well, as as always, it's been it's been great, <laughs> great bullshitting with you. And, you know, hopefully somebody out there finds this stuff as interesting as we do. We uh, we were taught, you know, I've been been here in Bozeman for a handful of days and you know, didn't, you know, had, had one, one engagement that was, you know, to planned, but, uh, the rest of it, I was just like, oh, we'll just hang out and, and do whatever. And, uh, I do, I think our boss would probably end up agreeing that we don't work together very efficiently. <laughs> we have a lot of fun and we talk about a lot of cool stuff, but, uh, it's not, it's not, you know, it's not production end work. It's background work. I guess you could, you could say, but, uh, no, it, it's been great, and uh, and our bosses will probably be very thankful when we're back in our remote offices <laughs> in our respective cubbies. <laughs> yeah, no, you know what? The strategy, the the strategic benefit cannot be uh, under underestimated. But yes, from a pure production standpoint, a a a disastrous a disastrous chain of events for outdoor life. Yeah, it's just probably a good thing that we don't we don't work in an office together. Yeah, but, no, uh, <laughs> no, we we would we would never get anything done. We yeah. would be, we would be just having too much fun yeah but uh anyway well i appreciate everybody listening uh you know you guys uh, listeners are why why i why i and we do this and hope hopefully you enjoyed it and if you like tundra talk you enjoy it i appreciate it if you would leave a good review on itunes or whatever platform you listen on and uh you know if you you want to read more of, of john's like you know i'm not 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 tooting your horn but very in-depth and like knowledgeable, knowledgeable content, you know, stuff, stuff you study. The more, the more I've worked with you, the more I've come to appreciate, you know, like the, 
how seriously you take this stuff. And uh, it's benefited me greatly. So um, you can look, you know, see John's stuff on OutdoorLife.com. Um, I'll frequently share it. And uh, you're on Facebook, John B. Snow. And what's your Instagram? It's uh, it's the at symbol, then John, J-O-H-N, underscore, B as in boy, underscore, S-N-O-W. So John B. Snow with underscores between around either side of the B. Yep. Sounds great, man. Well, uh, well, thanks for having me, man. And thanks for the kind words. And, you know, I, I appreciate your, everything you bring to the party too. Like having, having you as a sounding board and, and getting, you know, a feel for your extensive expertise as well as has, uh, enhanced my, my knowledge and, and, uh, my appreciation for, for what we do too. All right. Sounds great. Now let's do some sword fighting. <laughs> All right. Let's get to <laughs> All it. All right. Thank you. All right.